Welcome to the Sales Acceleration Show, where we talk about the science of selling across the areas of demand generation, sales, and sales operation. This show is about doing. We focus on real problems, real solutions with real people, all dedicated to accelerating sales. I'm Gabe Larson. And I'm Steve Error. Let's dive in. Good morning. Um, we are live. Not live. We're not live. We're never live on the Sales Acceleration Show, but we are on the Sales Acceleration Show. So good morning. Glad to be um, here. Glad that you're listening. Um, I think we're going to have a fun show. As always, just got back from a trip from Toronto, and now we're, we're based here out of Salt Lake City, Utah, been about 70 degrees just went to Toronto huge storm east coast I hope everybody who's listening east coast is doing all right uh, was visiting a company up there and was doing um, some trade show consulting <laughs> how about that for you um, not one that I uh, I normally engage in but there was a company who was wondering the uh, tips and secrets of uh, running an optimized trade show and so um, we said, what the heck, you know, we've done some fun stuff. So just got back late last night. I've uh, been doing that for the last couple of days um, and jump right back into our, our, our show here. Now, um, today, something a little different. Uh, I don't, do I always say that? I don't know if I always say that, but today it is actually a little bit different. Um, uh, big fan of a gentleman by the name of Matt Dixon. So those of you who don't know Matt Dixon, he's a group leader, financial services and customer contact practices, as well as, this is quite the title, um, head of new product development at Corporate Executive Board or CEB. Now, for those of you who don't know, CEB um, Research, um, yeah, these guys just got bought for a lot of money. Um, um, but they've been doing research on all things kind of sales and marketing for a long time. Now, Matt has been a long time. I didn't realize he had been so long at corporate executive board. Um, uh, it's, I, I mean, I, I was, I had talked to him just a couple of weeks back and it's years, I mean, eight, nine, ten years. Um, but a super smart guy, he came to our conference on, in February with um, Accelerate, our user conference, or leadership conference, and, and uh, talked about kind of their specialty, and it's still the Challenger sale. I want to get him back on and talk through um, some of the things around their Challenger customer. I think they've got some great ideas there, but the Challenger sale, if you've not read it, it, it is a fantastic book. Um and Judd Bagley, our our head of PR of, of you know um, public relations here at InsightSales.com, had the chance to sit down with him just after Accelerate and talk a little bit about some of the the cool things that Matt has done in his past, some of the cool things um, around the Challenger sale, um, and we wanted to kind of play that interview because we thought it was pretty applicable. And then we're gonna I've invited Matt to jump back on the show. Um, in, in a couple of weeks, talk about the Challenger customer. But in in the Challenger sale, um, 
it's a pretty revolutionary book, and it talks about, I mean, it is a sales book. There's a lot of them out there. Uh, but it talks about five uh, profiles in sales, the hard worker, the challenger, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, and this problem solver. So they, they look at, they interview and profile all these different sales reps, and then they categorize them into the, these different profiles of how they go about selling. You know, the hard worker always goes the extra mile and he doesn't give up easily. And then the relationship builder, you know, builds strong customer advocates. Um, the, the problem solver, um, you know, ensures that all problems are solved, and, <laughs> like the name suggests, and is very detail oriented. The lone wolf, um, and we all know people like this kind of follow their own instincts. They're, they're very independent. And then this challenger was this this kind of unique person that um, always kind of has a different view of the world and understands the customer's business and loves to debate and, and push the customer. And I love how Matt talks about teach, tailor, and take control. You know, this is the way that challengers really behave. And in their studies, um, when it comes to percentage of high performers, the challenger, 39% of top performers were, were challengers. A lot of core performers were relationship builders, but top performers were challengers. And, you know, I've got a little different option being a, a consultant and running our labs. And um, sometimes when I get on the phone, I don't have to, you know, I'll even say I'm not, a, <laughs> the salespeople love it. I would say I'm not a salesperson. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to often position myself more in that teach. Um, so, you know, I'll go in and I, I do like to ask some very basic core questions around discovery, but I try to move to teach as quickly as possible. Um, you know, based on the hundreds of engagements I've been out on and the customers I've worked with, um, and then really just get into that mode of, you know, if I'm in your shoes, this is really how I'd run it, or this is, you know, when I was at XYZ company, this is what they did, and I'd recommend you follow suit. So I love the three T's. I try to use them all the time, teach, tailor, take control. But um, wanted to have you hear this interview, Judd Bagley, Matt Dixon, CEB, um, real interesting, talking all things challenger sale, and then I promise we'll bring Matt back on uh, in a couple weeks to talk about the challenger customer. So with that, uh, over to you, Judd and Matt. Uh, so I grew up in the uh, New York area. I was born in Brooklyn. I spent my uh, early years in Nassau County, Long Island, and then um, moved to uh, northern New Jersey when I was in middle school. Um, went to college at a small liberal arts school called uh, Mount St. Mary's College uh, in Emmitsburg, Maryland. Um, I went on straight from undergrad to grad school, actually. I really gotten into sort of doing independent research in the area of political economy. Um, and so I went to the University of Pittsburgh uh, to get my PhD um, in political economy. Um, and I uh, spent uh, about five years there. I finished up in 99. Um, I think about halfway through uh, that experience, I decided I didn't want to be a university professor, which was the whole reason I went to get my doctorate. Um, and so I uh, fell victim a little bit to the sunken cost fallacy uh, uh, and a little bit of pressure from my parents to just stick it out since I wasn't married yet, didn't have kids. And they said, hey, being a college professor isn't the worst fallback option, so go ahead and finish your Ph.D., which I did. But I, but as I drew to a close in my program, I quickly started looking for uh, places that could that where I could apply my research skills, but more around uh, in a for-profit kind of setting. So 
I had become really interested in, um, and a lot of my research revolved around um, joint ventures and strategic alliances. Specifically, what I wrote my dissertation on was um, technology transfer in the commercial aerospace industry. So, in other words, like when Boeing builds a new plane uh, or Airbus, how do they enlist Asian subcontractors? In what role do governments, uh, institutions, ideologies, um, regulatory regimes play in dictating what's called sort of a technology offset or, or technology for market access. So no mistake that, um, you know, Boeing is, has huge market share with the Japanese airlines because they enlist uh, uh, heavy or make heavy use of Japanese subcontractors to make their planes. Um, and so that was what my dissertation was about. But it was really at the higher level. It was, it was about business, and it was about um, the impact of uh, states and mar- uh, on markets. And so I went out looking for a place where I could, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, sell my research skills, and I came across uh, CEB, which was at the time called Corporate Executive Board. We've truncated that to CEB um, more recently. Uh, and CEB is actually going to be acquired by Gardner. That was announced earlier this year, which is uh, uh, pretty exciting for everyone here. Uh, we expect that to close sometime in the uh, early second quarter time frame. But, uh, you know, the thing that drew me to CEB was there were a lot of people like me, a lot of refugees from academia, former McKinsey consultants, investment bankers, folks who you know, were smart, intellectually curious people, but who didn't really want to do consulting, but wanted to think about big problems for big companies, but more from a research perspective. And so it was a perfect match for what I was looking for, um, allowing me to leverage my research skills. And I uh, I started, I've been at CB now for 18 years. I'm shocked listening to you talk because I would have assumed, based on based on what I know about you know your, your theory and your talk, that, that you've been a Line. No, I don't do I don't do sales. I just write about it and research it. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for those who carry the bag and, and do sales. I got to say, you're a very charismatic dude, and I I buy just about <laughs> anything from you. And I kind of would have figured you're the guy they send in when they got to close the deal. It's very interesting to, that you point that out because I think that one of the things that has made um, has made a challenger in some of the research we've done around sales most interesting is that we don't come from a practitioner perspective and, and explicitly so if you pick up any sales book um, on the bookshelf and there are lots of them we all know that and there are a lot there's lots of great advice in those books written by people who have carried the bag or have led large sales teams but they all start from a perspective of hey in my 30 years of leading teams in sales or in my 30 years of being a bag carrying salesperson here are my secrets uh, of success what we come at we come at this question of sales performance from a research perspective. And so we don't uh, we don't purport to bring any personal expertise to bear here outside of the expertise as researchers and uh, sort of data scientists and going after really interesting questions, which is what makes the best salespeople who they are, what are customers looking for today, and all these questions we talk about in the challenger sale, um, and, and coming at it from a scientific perspective. Now, I, I think one of the really interesting things, especially for heads of sales, um, and I know that this is a, this is an area that inside sales has been all over is this idea of uh, the science of selling. And frankly, there's been too little research done on sales effectiveness. It's um, uh, Neil Rackham, who's uh, had a lot of influence on our work, uh, the author of Spin Selling, kind of the godfather of professional uh, sales, once made a comment to me. He said, you know, it is remarkable to me that for every um, – you know, 10 marketing programs, if you look at universities, for every 10 marketing programs or marketing departments in, in university business schools, there's one marketing job out there. And for every um, for every uh, uh, one sales uh, program at a university, there are 10 sales jobs out there. So 
it's it, and you know there really just isn't that much serious research done in sales. I think that's changing, and I think it's changing uh, because um, uh, of the amount of data that's being collected, some of the work that uh, you guys are doing, um, and other uh, folks in this uh, in the technology space, and now really actually look at the data and really try to unpack it and try to understand what makes the best salespeople who they are. But I think that's why Challenger actually resonated with people was because we did not come from come at this question of sales performance from an, a practitioner or expert perspective, a personal perspective, but rather from a data perspective. We brought science to a big question that has that chief sales officers have grappled with for a very long time. I wonder if there's kind of a only Nixon could go to China um, scenario <laughs> here because just two weeks ago we, we put out a bit of research which showed that that the tactics that inside the B2B sales organizations employ to meet end of month in particular quotas is, is actually causing many of these to lose a lot of the field. Well, and the deals they do get are quite a bit smaller. I mean, they come at a huge yeah. discount because they're pushing to get these through. Now, you look at the graph, and certainly, you know, deal closing by day over the course of a month are pretty flat, and then the final three or four days of the month, they spike. So any industry veteran would look at that and say, see, it works. But, yeah. but they're not seeing the larger picture that only comes through the lens of completely objective research. Yeah. And so yeah. maybe it, it takes people outside of sales to, to reach some of these really counterintuitive uh, conclusions like, like you have in Challenger. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I'll throw out another one, which, which I suspect is probably something that you've seen. By the way, just, you know, just to back up, I think this is a – it's a uh, – I can lament the fact that not a lot of data, not a lot of scientific research is done in sales, but I, I do think that, you know, to your point, that's changing and it's changing very dramatically. You know, it wasn't too long ago that a lot of sales was done off of, you know, and I'm like, I, I don't want to pick on any one methodology, but yeah, there's always the proverbial like blue sheet or account planning template or what have you, but it was literally paper, right? It, it sometimes got filled out, sometimes didn't, but there was... You know, there were little black books and, and stacks of business cards and Excel spreadsheets and, you know, uh, account planning templates and, you know, tools not integrated into, you know, um, into software at all. Not uh, certainly not throwing off data into the cloud that could be hoovered up and analyzed and, and studied. So I think now with um, so much of sales actually happening through systems that are um now bringing, you know, uh, collecting up, ag aggregating up data into the cloud, giving you the ability to look at some of these questions, it does then yield these very surprising insights like, wow, we thought, we thought um, you know, an end-of-quarter discounting approach would be the, thing, the exact thing to drive. It's, we've always thought anecdotally that was the right answer. I'll throw another one out there that we, we found in our own research, and I suspect, I suspect that you guys would find the same thing, is that the best thing, it's always been assumed that, by sales operations professionals that they want to drive faster deal throughput uh, and, and um, uh, funnel speed, if you will, um, in, in sales cycle times. And what we found is the best salespeople actually close uh, much more slowly or, or sell uh, in a longer cycle time than their average performing counterparts. And so, it, you know, it's unfortunate news, but the, the, the assumption had always been faster, faster, faster. What can we do to accelerate deal throughput? And we find is actually your best sellers – um, they really actually do take more time. There's also been an assumption historically of, you know, uh, just feeding in as many opportunities into the funnel uh, as possible, and it actually turns out your best sellers are, it's a little bit more of that Jerry Maguire approach of, like, they pick the right clients and they pick the right opportunities. They don't chase garbage trucks. They're far more selective, um, and, uh, and if you look at their deal 
uh, if you look at their sales funnel, either by number of opportunities or the way it paces out, it really looks different and in many ways different from what has historically been assumed to, to be good from a sales operations perspective. I always love it when something becomes cliche and then some iconoclast comes along and is the first one to point at it and call it cliche. That was you. When you talked about um, how, you know, your all last decade, the big thing was, you know, you got to go in and ask them what keeps them up at night. But, but you say a challenger will tell the prospect what should be keeping them up at night. It's, I've heard this uh, sort of sentiment recounted many times by customers. Um, I shared that one story, which um, which is that, that phrase, which has always stuck with me, which was a CIO from um, a Fortune 100 company who... Um, who told me, you know, we're, I was uh, interviewing her and she was really ranting about this question-based sales approach, which, as you said, has really come, has been in vogue. And it's not just the what's keeping you up at night question, but it's all the permutations of that question, the what's going to get you fired or promoted, what what are your NBOs this year, what, is, what does the CEO care about, what's the strategy, and how does that tie to what you are responsible for, what's going to get you and your team paid at the end of the day. And, you know, what it's designed to do, I think it's, the first thing I want to say is that it's, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Um, and in many respects, those questions come from a really good place. It's a place of empathy. Um, you know, we don't want to, it's the old Stephen Covey principle of seek to understand before being understood. Uh, it only makes sense that uh, the best way to start off a sales conversation is to ask some great questions, to really not be presumptuous, but not, not assume expertise, but to get to know the company and the customer that you're sitting across the table from. And so that's why we ask those questions. And those questions are really rooted in the, um, the sort of the hallmark of solution selling, which is really this approach that by asking great questions, incisive questions, the customer will say something which will allow us to attach our value proposition to their problem, to the thing that's keeping them up at night. Um, and what the CIO who I spoke with was, you know, she's railing about this approach um, and just said, gosh, I hate when these salespeople come in and ask me what's keeping me up at night. Nothing makes me more crazy. I think she actually did say, you know what's keeping me up at night is the thought of the next one of you guys walking into my office and asking me what's keeping me up at night. I hate that. You know? And I said, I, I had heard this like three interviews in a row, and the first couple of times I was like, okay, maybe this is just this, just this person, but I kept hearing it over and over again. And I, I stopped um, this executive and I asked her, you know, just so you know, like we work with heads of sales. They all think that's a really great thing to be doing, and they're teaching their salespeople how to do it better and even more frequently and with different kinds of questions. They've got their people in questioning school while you're sitting here telling me that that approach doesn't deliver value, so why? And she said, look, I, I'm not saying questions are bad. If you're going to sell me a compl- anything complex, a solution of any nature, and frankly, even if you're going to sell me a product, you better get to know me and my organization. And, and there is a time and place for me to uh, teach you things about my organization, for you to ask really great questions about me and what's important to me and what's important to my team and my customers and all this stuff. But don't start the conversation there. Don't walk into my office and ask me what's keeping me up at night because what you fail to appreciate as a salesperson is that you're my window into the outside world. You will meet with more CIOs in a week than I'll meet with in a year. And so don't ask me what's keeping me up at night. Tell me what should be keeping me up at, at, up at night. What's keeping all those other guys you meet with up at night? And by the way, what are your best customers doing with your products and services that are delivering breakthrough performance, that are delivering new value through technology for your business customers or for your end customers um, or for your employees. Give me some of those ideas. Let's grapple with those. And I'll, if, if that's interesting, I will answer your questions all day long. Um, and so I've, I've, been, I've heard so many customers kind of um, uh, recount the story or their version of that kind of feedback. And again, it's, it's not to say that challengers don't ask questions. They ask great questions. 
but they don't start the conversation there. They start the conversation with a hypothesis about what they think is probably keeping the customer up at night, and what they're working towards is a reframe. Here's the thing that really should be keeping you up at night, the thing that you're probably not thinking about, but I'll tell you, our best customers are all over this opportunity, and you should be too. Uh, let me demonstrate that to you. And usually, that that reframe moment is that moment that generates um, a, a uh, some disagreement from the prospect, where they'll say, well, I've never heard that from any of the other salespeople walking my office. I've got, you know, McKinsey here, and I've got BCG here, and I've got Accenture, and I've got all these smart consultants. They've never said that to me. I'm pretty sure you're wrong, but tell me more, because I'd love to poke holes in what you just said. But now they're engaged. Now they're leaning forward, and that's really what the challenger is looking to do, is lead with insight. Um, and, and ideally, it's not free consulting. It's insight that has a very commercial intent. We call it commercial insight, because it is insight from the supplier that ties to the thing the supplier is uniquely positioned to deliver uh, to customers. You also talk about the idea of creating constructive tension and how that is, that's conducive, that, that catalyzes the kinds of conversations that lead to agreements and, and deals closing. How would you best explain to somebody what that really means and how do people sometimes misinterpret what it means? Yeah, it's, um, it, I would say in two dimensions. I think one is a, um, from uh, in terms of skills and the approach itself, and I think the other thing is um, having uh, having something to challenge with. And so, I guess just on the approach itself, what I would say is, I think there's a big difference between what we call as uh, being assertive um, or taking control and generating some constructive tension, and being aggressive or rude or obnoxious. Um, and as I jokingly said during the keynote, um, uh, the you know if we if that were the case, we would call this person the jerk and not the challenger. Um, that is a very different approach. What I what we describe as assertiveness is a is between being very passive, uh, uh, reactive, accepting whatever the customer says and just responding to that, reacting to that, and then being all uh, because that's all about the customer. It's not about you. So what do what do you need? What's keeping you up at night? Let me help you with that. And then aggressive on the other end of the continuum, which is, it's all about me. I'm going to, and maybe the classic aggressive approach might be, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat up this entire hour telling you all about us as a company, our history, our mission and values, all the stuff we make. I'm going to make you go through this demo. It's all about me and what I'm here to talk about. And this, you know, this middle ground, this assertive ground that we've kind of staked out, we said that's really where the challenger kind of swims is in that assertive middle ground. It's an approach that, you know, from an approach perspective, is, is professional, it's empathetic, um, it's respectful, it's courteous. Um, it's not aggressive or obnoxious. So I, let me give you a, a quick example um, here. And I think hopefully this will illustrate really well um, what we mean by that. Um, there was a story I didn't get to tell, actually, um, in Salt Lake, mainly because I was running out of time, um, which is often the case. Um, and uh, it's a great example of what it means to create constructive tension uh, to be assertive, but to do so in a professional and respectful way. So you remember in the keynote, I talked about this phenomenon of, you know, customers engaging salespeople very late in the purchase journey at 57% of the way through the purchase journey. So nearly 60% of the way through before they pick up the phone and talk to the salesperson. Now, salespeople are often in the position of being on the receiving end of those outreaches, right? So think about um, the number of calls or um, opportunities to respond to an RFP that salespeople get. Um, that happened very late. There was a head of sales we worked with uh, from an industrial gases company who um, uh, told us a story. We had done this uh, profile analysis and this uh, challenger analysis of the sales force. He actually, we actually knew this person, the seller he was talking about, was one of his uh, few challengers on his sales team. And he said, this seller, this guy on my team, 
um, it's a great example of taking control in that late engagement kind of scenario. He said there was a big opportunity as a hospital system that we've been chasing for years. And as an industrial gases company, I mean, the hospitals consume a lot of like, you know, oxygen tanks and CO2 and nitrogen and all these kinds of things. And they said, we've been chasing these, these guys, this hospital system was like on the top of our prospect list every single year. And every single year they would politely refuse to meet with us because they were in bed with our biggest competitor. Well, one day we got a phone call from, uh, from this hospital who said, Great news. We are considering putting this piece of our business, our, all of our uh, um, industrial gas procurement, out to bid uh, to a different vendor. Um, we are, we'd like you to participate in this, uh, uh, in this competition. We're going to um, send you the RFP. It's got everything uh, in there that we're looking for, um, all the stipulations for the solution, the, number, you know, the amount of industrial gas we're looking to buy, um, with what frequently, frequency of what types, and how we like, deliver it and package and you know, the kind of customers probably want all these things. Uh, we are going to send that RFP to you. We have time um, in two weeks where the buying committee is meeting. It's going to be you guys, uh, the the current uh, supplier that we, the people we currently use, and then a local supplier, a mom and pop shop there that are trying to be inclusive. Um, we probably wouldn't win the deal anyway, but we, we want to include a local supplier as well. So we, we've got, and just so you know, at this buying committee, we are going to make a decision. We're going with somebody's going to win this business. Um, we've got a, a budget. We've got approval to spend that budget. We've got the authority. We've got the need. It's now. And, you know, the timing is, is you know, it's next week. So um, he told us a story. He said one of my, so one of my challenger salespeople got a phone, this phone call. He said, if you think about an average seller, when they get a phone call like that, they're thrilled, right? Because for them, it's like deal T-ball or sales T-ball because um, they've got a customer. It's a big customer. It's a limited competition set. So you know it's not hundreds of suppliers. It's just you and two others who are competing for this. You've been given exclusive rights to compete for this business. They wrote down everything in the RFP that they're looking for. So there's no guesswork involved. They told you what they want. They, you get a sense of how much they want to pay for it. Um, they're giving you some time on the calendar. The buying committee is there. They have authority. They have budget. This is great. Like I, I may not win this thing, but it's a lot easier than competing against a whole bunch of suppliers and not really knowing what the customer is looking for. So your average customer, our salesperson, I should say, is really excited to get that phone call. But what this head of sales told me, he said, you know, our challengers, and specifically this one challenger salesperson, knew right away that the only reason he was being called this late was because he was, he, we were being used as column fodder. Um, we were being used to provide leverage against the current supplier, the supplier they currently buy from, so that they could extract a better price. They have no intention of switching suppliers. Otherwise, they would have engaged us much earlier. They're just using us to provide leverage and to really put the screws to the incumbent supplier. So what he said, well, here's what this challenger salesperson did. He went to that meeting. He was going to turn down the meeting. <coughs> he went to the meeting. <coughs> uh, the salespeople from the other two suppliers were waiting in the in the, lo- the lobby for their turn. We went first. Um, and the head of sales said, I went with my, my challenger sales rep on this bit, uh, meeting. And what he did blew my mind. He got up in front of this buying group. It was about 20 executives. You know, the head of procurement, the head of um, uh, operations, the CFO, the, you know, all the, the head of um, uh, surgical operations, all these things. They're all around the table. Um, and he handed out our response to their RFP. It's like a 50-page document. He handed everyone a copy. But then what he said like, blew me away. He said, instead of using the next hour, which is all I have with you guys, uh, to walk you through uh, our response to your RFP, um, I, I don't think that's going to be great use of your time because what you see in that document I just passed out is exactly what our response to exactly what you asked for. What I'd rather do is spend the next hour is sharing with you the three things that we were really surprised you guys didn't include in the RFP. 
and why we think those things are so important to solving the business problem you're looking to solve in the first place. Over the course of the next hour, he proceeded to lay out a case for why they missed a whole bunch of really important uh, criteria when picking a supplier, uh, and then talked about, um, if you will, didn't just teach them new things, but kind of untaught them all the things they taught themselves or assumed that were important. Um, what happened at the end of this uh, buying process is sort of a, uh, a Cinderella story. So these guys walked in, and they were column butter. They were the dark horse. They weren't going to win the deal. They were just being used to put pressure on the incumbent supplier. Um, the the um, buying committee politely listened to the other pitches from the other salespeople who, uh, almost as if you know playing ex- the exact game, walked in and just parroted back what was in their RFP responses. Um, what the, the head of the buying committee did was he dismissed all the suppliers. He shut down the buying committee and said, we are going to redraw the RFP because what that first guy came in and told us, we had not even thought of before. We need to think about this stuff. They ended up re- reissuing the RFP, included those criteria in the RFP, and it turns out that that supplier was the only one that could actually deliver on those things, and they ended up winning the deal, which is which is a remarkable kind of tight high wire act, right? And we, I don't know that salespeople would always do that. I don't know if it's always a good idea, but um, it is a great example of uh, constructive tension and taking control, but doing it in a professional, respectful way. Because I think what we'd agree on is that that person, while creating tension in intellectual tension with the mental model the customer thought they had built around what they needed and breaking that mental model and getting them from A to B and, and really creating that tension, but doing so in a very respectful way because remember what the person, what the salesperson said is, it's not a good use of your time for me to just parrot back to you all the stuff you already told us you wanted. You want. That's, by the way, the other two guys in the lobby, that's exactly what they're going to do. What I want to do is deliver value in the hour that we have together. And here's the value I'm going to deliver. It's teach you new things that you hadn't considered. You can take or leave those things, but all, the, our, all of our customers who really knock it out of the park in terms of, their, in terms of business performance, they do include these criteria. And they think are very important to solving their business, uh, solving for their business objectives. So just a really great, I love it because it's a really great example of that. What do you do with those situations when you get that late phone call? But also, more importantly, what it really means to be assertive, but not aggressive or rude or obnoxious. But uh, the one other thought, I won't go as long on this one, um, but the, the other piece of it I mentioned before, part of it is the approach. And, and so having an approach that is, is actually empathetic and is professional is super important. We're talking about creating tension. We're not trying to be rude or aggressive. The other piece is if you're going to challenge You've got to have something to challenge with. Uh, otherwise, you're just kind of um, annoying, actually. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you go in and all you're trying to do is disagree with the customer and tell them that they're wrong, you, you know, you sure as hell better have something that you can replace that with. If you're going to break their mental model and tell them it's wrong, you've got to have something to replace it with. That's the job of the company to build that stuff. You know, the reality is your best salespeople are probably doing this on the fly. They can do this on their own. But the companies who really get this right invest in creating that commercial insight, packaging it, and giving the salesperson something to challenge with. You've got to have that insight. It's got to be backed by data. It's got to be presented in a way that's impactful and emotional and is going to you know, really um, uh, hit home with the customer. But that's the job of the company to build that stuff. The, where we see a lot of companies get it wrong with Challenger is around those two dimensions. First, their salespeople hear the word Challenger, and they just assume that's a permission to be annoying. Um, and so they go out and they just tell the customer they're wrong. And then the second thing they do is they never equip the customer, uh, the salesperson with anything to challenge with. So again, they're, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's sort of an empty challenger approach, but it's not, uh, it's not rooted in insight because the company never invested in creating that stuff. And so they've never given their salespeople a good leg to stand on when it comes to challenging. You, you discuss five different, uh, sales rep profiles of which challenger is one. Do, 
is it, is it possible to move in between those buckets, or are yeah. you born a challenger or not a challenger? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, that's the uh, that's a question I get um, uh, all the time. Is challenger are challengers born or made? Um, uh, let me answer it in a, a couple of ways, and I'll try to keep this shorter than my other answers. <laughs> I always make people regret asking questions because all the answers come in like 42 parts. <laughs> it's like, you know, take a really long time to uh, to divulge. But the um, the thing I would say um, is uh, first, um, you can hire challengers. Um, well, let me back up for a second. The, what, the, the thing to remember about challengers is that these are not mutually exclusive profiles. And so what you find is that every salesperson in our study um, spikes in one of those five profiles. So they major in one of those. But they have trace elements of the other four profiles as well. Um, one of the things we find to be really important when you're trying to get uh, salespeople who are not would not self-diagnose, nor would we not classify as challengers. And I find salespeople are very self-aware around that. I've had a lot of salespeople come up to me after I present saying, it was tough for me to hear that because I'm, I'm a relationship builder. I'm a hard worker. I just, you're telling me that I got to be somebody else. I just don't know if I am that person. What, we're trying, what we try to uh, show them is like, look, you probably major in relationship building, but you've got plenty of challenger. Think of them like those old equalizer bars on your stereo, you know, the bass, the treble, so on and so forth. What you're trying to do is, if you've got five equalizer bars representing the five profiles, you're trying to dial up that challenger equalizer bar, but recognize you've got it in you. We're just trying to kind of pull it out and add another tool to the tool belt. We're not trying to get you to change everything about who you are and what you do. Um, what, when it comes to hiring challengers, the reality is that you can hire challengers. There are people who are sort of natural-born challengers. The problem with that is that um, when we, we did a separate study, which I didn't get to talk about uh, in Salt Lake, but... Um, only about 7% of the available sales labor market would be classified as natural-born challengers. So these are the challengers you can hire off the street and then just teach them about who you are and what you do and what you sell. They're, they're good to go. Um, that is a very small percentage. So the reality is for a sales organization, you're not going to get there through hiring alone. It's a little bit like firing, finding the needles in the haystack. By the way, you should be trying to find those needles in the haystack, and that means you need to bring more um, science to bear when it comes to hiring and selecting and assessing your salespeople. Are you screening for these challenger skills? Because if you're not, and your competitors are, then you're just getting what's left over. Um, but the other thing it tells you is that at 7%, again, you're not going to get there through hiring alone, uh, most likely. And so from a hiring perspective, we really tried to tell people, not only don't just look for the needles in the haystack, but um, expand your view of who challengers are. And what we mean by that is that challenger is a business posture. It's not just a sales posture. You find challengers in all kinds of professions, in marketing, in uh, product, in R&D, in, um, in legal. You find a lot of challengers in legal, um, in finance, you know, in, in consulting. And so what you might be better off doing is not thinking about hiring people with sales experience who are challengers, but actually thinking about hiring people who are challengers who would be willing to sell for a living. And, um, and that's a different mindset, right? Because if you think about it that way, there are lots of challengers out there. They don't have sales experience, and so what you're taking on is the burden of teaching them how to sell. But what you're what you're trying to buy is their natural, innate sort of challenger ability. That's on the hiring side. But on, uh, I will tell you on the development side, what we found again back to that equalizer bar kind of metaphor. There's a we've had a lot of success. We have a challenger training business. We've had a lot of success uh, moving the needle for organizations and getting um, not natural born challengers people fall into the other four profiles to do the challenger thing, to at least play the role of the challenger when they're in the right customer situation, when the customer context demands it. It doesn't always work. And, and so what we tell people going down this journey is expect some fallout. And the fallout's probably about 20 to 30% of your sales force. 
is going to probably opt out of the journey, but they leave, they opt out. They don't, they don't follow the journey because they can't do it, but more because they don't want to sign up for being a challenger. It just rubs them the wrong way. It's not the, it's not the way they've gotten to where they are in their sales careers, and they're going to look for another organization that will value their relationship builder skills or their lone wolf approach to selling. Um, but you can certainly get there, and what I find is that most companies who get this right do a little bit of both. They tune their hiring to find those challengers, and they start to think more creatively about the kind of talent we bring in to the sales organization by hiring from other um, uh, professional areas like consulting or law or uh, what have you. But then they also really focus on driving challenger skills. And the key to driving challenger skills is not just the training, but it's the coaching that follows up from that. We've already talked about the idea of creating content. You need that, the marketing component. You've got to have a challenge. you got to have the thing to challenge with. But challenger skills are nuanced, and they, they get developed over time. And what we know is that sales managers um, are really bad at coaching, and most of them confuse coaching with performance management. You know, sitting down telling somebody they haven't done enough visits this week or they haven't set, responded to enough RFPs or they haven't scheduled enough co- customer meetings, that's not coaching. That's performance management. And so when you say the word coaching to a sales manager, they instantly go into, oh, that's about doing line-by-line or, or pipeline reviews with my salespeople. That's an important part of being a sales manager. Coaching is about focusing on the skills and driving the skills that are known to drive success in sales. So that's carving out time to talk about how to develop these things like the teaching skills of the challenger, the um, the ability to take control, the ability to be assertive without being aggressive or obnoxious and to create that constructive tension, the ability to tailor for different kinds of customer stakeholders. Those are all core skills, but they're not things you're going to just, you can get exposed to them in the classroom, but you're not going to master them in the classroom. It's really incumbent upon the organization to invest in sales managers that understand not just what challenger is, but how to coach to those behaviors and get their people there over time uh, and be committed to that journey. Finally, tell us what's next. Uh, How are you building upon this uh, uh, challenger concept? Yeah, sure. So one of the things we we found, uh, one of the, uh, frankly, the criticisms or critiques of uh, challenger was that in some respects, it's a, while it's complicated, it's a sort of an overly simplified view of the complex business-to-business sale. Because really, if you think back on the presentation, we talked about the Granger meeting and in this, what they call the Granger value advantage and shifting from leading with their unique value to leading to their unique value. But really, it was, it was at its core, it's a story of a sales meeting um, and, a, and arguably a, you know, a sales meeting, one sales interaction. But what most B2B sellers and, and most chief sales officers would tell us is like, that gives me a great sense for how we need to engage the customer, but the reality is that that's just the beginning of the sale. That's not the end of it, um, especially when you're selling anything complex because then what happens is you've got, to, you've got to cross the chasm from getting one person engaged with your challenger insight to, to get, having that person get everyone else in the organization engaged in the challenger insight. And so we wrote a follow-on book that's really about what challengers do to move uh, from, yes, we know that they challenge to get the customer from the status quo to agreeing on a new vision, a, a challenger vision, a new way forward. But how does that person, that stakeholder, that customer get everyone else on board? And what role does the salesperson play in forging that, um, in crossing that chasm and, uh, in, cro- in closing that gap? Well, one of the things we found was that that gap is really, really wide and it's getting wider every day. We, we wrote a book called The Challenger Customer, which is really the follow-on book to The Challenger Sale. Um, In that book, we talk about how the number of stakeholders in a complex B2B purchase is going up exponentially. When we wrote that book, that number on average was 5.4 stakeholders. We ran the data again a year later after we wrote the book, um, and we found the number had gone up to 6.8 stakeholders on average involved in any complex B2B purchase. 
Now, many people sound very complex solutions will even laugh at that number and say, for us, it's not 6.8 stakeholders, it's 6.8 committees of 6.8 stakeholders. So, you know, you end up, and, and you think about uh, the kinds of solutions we're selling today. You know, in a product selling world, it was easy to engage with a single buyer, right? Whether it was procurement or it was IT or what have you. Um, and one of the very simple uh, um, examples I would use is, think about back in the day, a, a person selling IT hardware, you know, selling laptops um, or desktops to the IT department. Well, there's really one buyer, maybe a couple of people you need to engage to sell those things. Um, it's a decision that that department can make on its own. But as those um, companies that sell laptops have tried to move not into They've tried to move from selling laptops to selling end-user computing services, of which the laptop or the desktop is only a small component of the overall solution because the solution also includes all the software. It includes all the end-user support. So rather than you guys having a help desk, outsource it to us. We'll handle all of your employees' questions about their their computer, uh, you know, about their um, about their hardware and their software. We'll do all the asset management. We'll, in fact, we'll manage all the cybersecurity as well. We will we will take all of that on now. When you're going from selling laptops to selling that, the end-user computing solution or service, now you're talking about a sale that, by definition, is it goes well beyond IT because it involves uh, legal. Because legal, you know, we're talking about somebody else having access to our data, our customer data, our information. It involves compliance. It involves um, HR, right, because we're talking about uh, people who might lose their jobs or might now be wearing a different uniform. They used to work for us, and now they're going to work for HP or they're going to work for Dell, um, uh, and uh, we're going to outsource those things. We're talking about uh, finance because it's a much bigger deal than simply buying a box of laptops. This is a, this is a multi-million dollar deal. We're going to consult procurement because if we're going to go down this path, um, we want to make sure we pick the right supplier and get the best deal possible because once we go down this path, we are locked in with that supplier for five, seven years. We're not going to make this decision again for a very long time, so we better get it right. So the number of stakeholders goes up exponentially, and um, one of the things we found in the challenger customer, the real aha was the way that customers, uh, that, that challengers sell and the way that they forge consensus in that group of uh, diverse and arguably dysfunctional stakeholders, um, the way they forge consensus is very, very different. The average salesperson is out there, your relationship builders are out there um, looking for a specific kind of uh, customer stakeholder. We actually call them, um, uh, we do a whole classification, just like we did with salespeople, we look at customers and we, they fall into seven different profiles. And at the highest level, they kind of fall into three types. Um, I won't go through all seven, but the highest level, you've got um, talkers, mobilizers, and blockers. I'll deal with the blockers first. Blockers are the people who just don't want to meet with you. So we can take them off the table right away. They're kind of the, in the execution mode. So these are the folks who, even if you desperately want to meet with them, they desperately don't want to meet with you. And usually we'll say something about, hey, you know, maybe next year we're in execution mode right now, so we're really focused on executing our strategy. Let's talk some other time. But the other stakeholder types, um, of which there are three three specific kinds of talkers and three specific kinds of mobilizers, but the thing that makes them very different is that talkers are almost like the relationship builder's twin inside the customer organization. They are very generous with their time. They're always willing to meet with the salesperson. They'll, they'll dish the dirt. They'll network you with their colleagues. They'll tell you who's got the purse strings and how this decision is likely to get made. But at the end of the day, the talker is very unlikely to mobilize for change. They're very unlikely to cash any political chips and forge any kind of consensus. They're more than willing to give you information, um, but they're not willing to put their necks out and put their necks on the line to push a deal forward, to drive that consensus across a diverse group of stakeholders. They sit on the sidelines, if you will. 
Now, mobilizers are much more idea-oriented people, and the way you think about them is they're kind of like the challenger's twin inside the customer organization. That's why we call the book The Challenger Customer, because challengers look for challenger customers. They're trying to find the person who is wired like they are. They're trying to look for the internal debater. We all know these colleagues, right? But these are the people, these are the, the folks who always have a provocative point of view, but they're also the folks who get the group thinking differently. They're not afraid to put the big thorny issues on the table. They're not afraid to put forth a contrarian view, and they're not afraid to forge that consensus, especially when they are convicted that that, that, that consensus is around an idea that will have real payoff for the business, or real payoff for employees, or customers, or what the objective is. But they really act like the challenger's twin inside the customer organization. So what we found is that to bridge that gap between getting one person sold to getting the whole organization sold, it really depends and really hinges on who you sell to and who you engage. And we found is that challengers are really good at finding the right stakeholders and then equipping them with the insight, the tools, and the knowledge they need to go forge consensus across those 6.8 diverse and dysfunctional stakeholders. So it's really almost a... The, you know, we can tell you about what challengers do, we can tell you about a challenger sales presentation, but who you challenge matters almost as much as the fact that you challenge and how you leverage that act as your surrogate inside the customer organization really dictates um, whether or not that deal will close at the end of the day in the way that you want. And we have a lot of organizations that tell us, you know, we go and we do the challenger thing and then it kind of goes off the rails. And what we, what we often diagnose that as is, you know, they, they'll tell us, and what, what customer uses this um, uh, phrase said, you know, we go out there and we make our challenger pitch, and then it just kind of ends up in the solutions graveyard. They go to committee, and the only thing that this, this diverse group of stakeholders, the, the meeting that we're not invited to, the only thing they can agree on is the lowest common denominator stuff, like stay the course, avoid disruption, save money, avoid risk. And so we go in and we made this really compelling pitch, this challenger pitch around a complex solution, and all they can agree on is like a low-level pilot or just buying a box of laptops from us. And so, uh, you know, we often kind of end up back in that product-selling world, even though we're trying to sell them on a solutions vision. Um, and a lot of it hinges on the fact that they were selling to the wrong person to begin with, and they hitched their wagon to that wrong stakeholder. And that challengers look for a very different kind of person when it comes to who to sell to and who to, uh, who to count on to help close the deal and forge that consensus on the customer side. So is the is the mobilizer the challenger customer? The mobilizer is the challenger customer. Yes. So that's that was just sort of a, a fun play on the challenger sale that we use. We actually, when we first wrote the mobilizer research, um, we we thought about calling them challenger customers, but we didn't want to be so uh, sort of navel gazing that we use our own title from the other book to describe them. Because really, what they're doing is mobilizing the organization. They're mobilizing for change. They're forging consensus. That is what they're doing. But for the book, we kind of uh, didn't think it was a bad thing to do draft off of uh, Challenger and, and wanted to show uh, readers how this sort of fit in with that Challenger model. Uh, we've given you part one, and this is sort of part two. 